Now again, I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to Revelation 17, and I'm going to try to draw together, and I will confess something to you. Uh, I, I, this, this, this connection between the city and tower in, in, in Genesis chapter 11 and this concluding scene, this, uh, this uh, final inset in the book of Revelation that interrupts the progress of the narrative long enough to set the scene so dramatically got a hold of me some time ago and I, and I committed myself to sharing it with you and I have been working on it, but uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit rough, I realize that, but if I can just draw it together once again, what I said last night was that I'm convinced that Genesis 11, the account of the Tower of Babel, is to our, we ought to regard it as, as seminal to our understanding of fallen human culture as Genesis 3 is seminal to our understanding of fallen mankind. That, that, and, and it's in that place in the book of Genesis where you have that huge separation, that division of these two lines, and the one line uh, sets itself in rebellion against God, the, the sons of Yoktan through Eber, and, uh, and they set out to make a name for themselves. On the other hand, there is uh, the other side of that line, the uh, descendants of Peleg who, who come down to Abraham, and Avram is given a call, and uh, God promises him, Avram, that he will make, he, Yahweh, will make the name of uh, Abraham great. But let me just say, not for the sake of Abraham. The man Abraham is going to become a clan. It's going to become a family, which is going to become a clan. And that clan is going to go down into Egypt. And, that, and they're going to be called out of Egypt with great wonders. And then at Mount Sinai, they're going to be made a nation. And uh, when they are given that covenant by which they become a nation in Exodus 19, uh, Moses is told to inform the people that he will make, God will make of them a holy nation and a kingdom with a priestly function. The point being that God called Israel and promised him, God called Abraham and promised him that he would make his name great, Abraham's name great, because he would represent Yahweh on the earth. And in, in blessing and, and even punishing Abraham and his descendants, God would put himself his own glory, his own character on display. And so on the one hand, you have this line that comes to Babel and determines in rebellion against the God of heaven to make its own name great. On the other hand, you have this line which comes to Abraham, and through that line, God determines that he will put himself on display and that he will glorify himself. And in that is the nub of the... Of the <laughs> of the conflict that has dominated and characterized and defined all of human history. It's, it's, it's the satanic lie that uh, Satan believed for himself in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High God, and that he persuaded the couple in the garden to believe you can be like the gods, and that each one of us must struggle with every day of our lives, must we not? Do we not live with the, with the primordial, that, that, that basic wicked uh, uh, impulse to make ourselves the center of our own universe and to, to live our lives out as if uh, human history in, in, in the narrow sense of our lives is all about us and so on when in fact it ought to be about the God whom we've called to serve. Amen and amen? So I think that's what's at stake. And I might just say too, I, 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 I've used this over the years with, uh, with college classes just to kind of uh, oh, stir up their pure minds as it were. But you know, I believe that every virtue which God demands of us, 
He possesses in perfection, save one. And that is humility. God is not humble. Now, his son took upon himself genuine humility, and God has demonstrated the capacity to, 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 to in, in, the, in the second person of that triune Godhead, to be remarkably self-effacing and so on. But the fact is that it is absolutely appropriate that God be honored because he is the creator. It is bottomlessly and infinitely inappropriate that the creature should seek to use the universe that God has created for himself, that the creature should seek to use that universe at whatever level for his own glory. And, and uh, uh, it, it, is, it is infinitely appropriate that the God who has called this world into existence and uh, a world which he has designed to, to magnify his own name should be given glory by those creatures whom he has given life. Well, having said that, it seems to me that that's what's at stake. And what happens in Genesis 11 is that in high-handed rebellion, uh, and, and in order to make a name for themselves, men determined to build a city and a tower. And it seems to me that that sort of summarizes or, or crystallizes, synthesizes better, the, the whole enterprise which is cosmos, the world, the satanic system. And it can be reduced to that city and that tower. And uh, having said that, I, I think that it's hugely instructive that when we come to Revelation 17, and again, let me say this. I said it too briefly last night, but I'm going to say it even more briefly this morning. What strikes me is that given the literary arrangement of the apocalypse, of this remarkable uh, end-time prophecy book, that this unveiling of God's purposes for the end times that we have in uh, the final book of our New Testament, given the way that book is arranged, is literary construction, you have this, this inexorable progress in the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. But you have all of these insets, as they're often called, all of these interruptions in the narrative, which are designed to set the scene and build the drama and, and create a crescendo of anticipation. And given those, the, 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 the breaking of those seals and then the, the, the blowing of those trumpets and now in chapter, seven, in chapter 16, I'm sorry, the emptying out of those golden censers, those bowls of, of, of hot, coals or wrath that God is going to, 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 to uh, cast upon the earth through these seven angels. And just as we've reached this moment of grand denouement, grand climax as we're awaiting the, the end when Messiah will descend, there is this final parenthesis, this final in the midst of that breathless moment of anticipation, at the, at the very time of that breathless moment of anticipation, everything stops and we are given an insight that seems to me to answer to the city and tower of, of, of Genesis 11. So let me take you because I think, and, and, and commentators universally agree that uh, uh, that is those who take a properly futuristic view of Revelation 4 to 19 will almost universally agree that what you have here is the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, the anticipation of that destruction and it's so interesting, and this is where I'm taking as much as anything else, in chapter 18, the mourning that this produces on the part, the, 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 the sorrow and the, the, the anguish of heart that this produces on the part of the world. But there are these two elements of the city, and they are, it seems to me, religious Babylon in chapter 17, which is the tower, the ziggurat, the man-made religion, which is in open defiance of the worship of God. And then in chapter 18, 
the destruction of commercial Babylon. And uh, one city, but with these two aspects and together, and again, everything, that's why I say from Babylon to Babylon, this whole story can be subsumed, it seems to me, this whole story of fallen man's rebellion against God can be subsumed under this, this rubric of the city and the tower. Well, let me take you to Revelation 17. Maybe before we go there, just look real quickly at Revelation 16, where you do have, I'm asking a lot of you here, uh, we haven't made our way through Revelation, but... but uh, you do have the, the emptying of the seventh bowl, or golden censer, beginning in chapter 16, verse 17. I'm going to say it one more time. The key by which the actual chronology of the drama in Revelation is moved forward is the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And you have seven of each. I believe they're telescopic in that the seventh seal is, in fact, the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is, in fact, the seven bowls. And so now, clearly, as we come to the seventh bowl judgment, the seventh censor judgment, uh, we have come to the end of the progress. And in verse 17, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne of saying, It is done. It's time. The time is at hand. Man's rebellion is about to be fully and finally crushed. His cultural rebellion now by the way time out all of this to introduce the kingdom and you know that during the kingdom there will be those born into mortal bodies who refuse to come to christ and there will be a final satanic rebellion of unsaved individuals but as far as this attempt which was born in genesis 11 to construct a culture in defiance of god you see throughout the kingdom culture is going to bow the knee to jesus culture is going to be shaped by God through his Christ. Throughout the kingdom, the knowledge, oh, how I cherish this, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as water covers the sea. So is there going to be another final end time rebellion? I believe that much of what God is doing in the course of human history is carefully nailing down the lid on, on human fallenness, that is, on the coffin of humanity, to demonstrate the justice of their condemnation, the condemnation of the lost, and thus the ineffable and, un, and bottomless grace of the God who has saved many out of that condition. So the point is that even during the period of the millennium, because there are those who are born in mortal bodies and have to come to faith and so on, many will rebel. And if there's any question as to whether or not man's well, let's say it a different way. There are, we're, we're constantly taught by different high priests of our culture and so on that man's real problem is external. It's his environment. It's that he's not sufficiently well-fed or cared for or loved and so on. And here you have a thousand years of absolutely idyllic, utopian peace on earth and security and plenty. And yet at the end of that time, there's a great number whom Satan shortly loosed for a season is able to move to rebellion against the, the, the Christ who provided all of that, which demonstrates uh, the, 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 the reality of man's utter fallenness and wickedness apart from redeeming grace. But having said that, I wonder, my point is that the destruction of the, the culture, the fallen wicked culture, which was germinated there in Genesis 11, I believe, is about to happen. That's what he means when he said, it is done and then the and notice by the way in verse 19 that this final bowl of judgment is cast out 
specifically upon Babylon. And uh, as a result, there is great earthquakes and, and, and the islands flee and the mountains crumble and uh, hail from heaven and so on. So the point is, you've had the seventh bowl and now uh, everything is in readiness and it is done and Messiah is about to descend. But look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now I've lost my time, I've got to hurry. In chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me to John, the revelator there in the Isle of Patmos, trying to help him explain, understand exactly what's going on. And he says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, we are going to be introduced in this chapter, chapter 17, which I take to be, and this is entirely what almost everybody takes it to be, uh, basically religious Babylon, false, wicked, harlot religion. And uh, there are two basic individuals, there are two personages. There is the woman, there is the beast. And there is some description of each of these, and I don't have time to develop it carefully. We'll just go quickly through it. But I want you to see the connection. The woman is described, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, as a harlot. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. She sits on many waters. Now the waters are going to be revealed to be the peoples of the earth. So wherever you go, throughout history, throughout the world, there is this harlot. Why a harlot? Why is she thus described? A harlot sells herself with the promise of satisfaction and pleasure. It's illicit, wicked satisfaction and pleasure. But what does she deliver? She delivers destruction and, and soul misery. And all throughout, it's, it's, you know, let me just say, again, I believe, and this is, this is absolutely the stuff of mainline commentators, I, I believe that this woman does in fact represent false religion. It is interesting that throughout the Old Testament, Israel's besetting sin is idolatry. She is constantly going after idols, gods of her own making. I was in, uh, when I was in Israel, we stopped at a, uh, there's a, there's a film down at the, uh, uh, where was it? Oh, the City of David, down at the City of David. Uh, if you go down the City of David, down the uh, Ophel, there's a, there's a new film. And it was kind of interesting to me because they represented the first temple, the temple that Solomon built and Hezekiah or, or remodeled and then was destroyed by the Babylonians. And I appreciated this, that as they represented it, uh, their, their, their imaginary representation there on that small hill of the temple, it looked like it was ablaze. There was a fiery smoke pouring out of the top of it. But it was their attempt to represent the glory cloud. And I believe that the glory cloud was visible to all who came to the temple, day or night. That glory cloud was not entirely ensconced within the little cube of a holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where the glory cloud sat. But I believe the effulgence, at least the penumbra, if not the actual effulgence, spilled out and, uh, and, and, and produced a, a light through the night. Now, that always strikes me when I read Ezekiel 8. And you read about the priests in the days of Ezekiel who were digging down into the foundations of the temple and crafting for themselves a little room which was, remember, the secret chambers of their imagery. And, uh, and there they would go and bow down to all of these idols. And I thought, you know, they could have dug all night long because they had sufficient light. In other words, here they are digging this little chamber for their idols and they're doing it in the light. There would have been a shadow cast on the ground in the middle of the night 
by reason of the penumbra at least or the, the effulgence of the glory. Does that make sense to you? To actually give yourself to the endeavor of thinking you're going to find a secret place to worship your idols when the glory cloud is glowing in such a way <laughs> through the night. Now I say that just to make this point. I used to, I used to struggle with this. I, I, I mean, as a young person, I remember thinking as I read through this and I think now, what was it about these false gods that, that, that Israel continually, generation after generation, found so attractive? When these gods are powerless, they can do nothing. They are gods of their own making. Remember how Isaiah makes fun of them for taking a tree and part of the wood, putting in a fire and burning and baking bread and eating the bread, and another part of the tree carving a little face on it and, 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 and bowing down. What foolishness. You've got a God, you put him on your cart, and you hit a rut in the road, and your God, your God falls off, and he can't get back up on the cart. You've got to put him back up on the cart, and you're going to worship this God. And I used to think, why, why, what was the attraction? Was there some metaphysical insight? Was there some, did, did, did the priests have some sort of Gnostic, no, no. It was absolutely, there's a reason why again and again, to use the King James language, uh, when, when Israel goes after these false gods, these idolatrous, wicked, wicked god systems, that they are accused of going a-whoring. Remember that? And uh, playing the harlot. What do we got here? And the point is, and I won't go into this, it's a little indelicate, I realize, but every single one of those god systems, they turn out to be exactly the same. Asherah is Venus, is Aphrodite, is, they're, they're all the same gods. And, 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 and in fact, in every case, there was, there, there, there was, there was the, the idea that there was a male god and a female god, and at certain seasons of the year, they would come together physically and, and, and give life to the earth and so on, and the way you the way you honored those gods was to duplicate that activity. And so every temple was housed, uh, was the house of, of thousands of temple priestesses who, who were nothing more than religious harlots. Now the point is, in the most, in the most physical way, in the most wicked and crass and, and iniquitous way, these gods, in fact, invited men to, to elicit pleasures. And that was the only attraction now, coming way back to it, the fact is that it's, it's, it's appropriate that this, this embodiment of false religion is here represented as a harlot. And notice what it says in verse 2. The kings of the earth committed fornication, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, in verse uh, 4, she's described as arrayed in purple and scarlet. And so false religion often aggrandizes itself and becomes hugely wealthy as it makes merchandise of people. But in verse 5, she's given a name, and that name is Babylon the Great. Remember, why Babylon the Great? Because this has its genesis in Genesis 11, because this was born in, in Babel. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth. And notice, by the way, verse 6. This is so huge. I haven't got time to stop on it. But she hates the truth with a murderous hatred. She is drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. False religion despises the truth. It can't stand the light of truth. It'll be exposed in the light of truth. And so she makes consort with, with political powers to destroy those who preach the truth. Well, at any rate, so much so for the woman. The second personage in this chapter is a beast. And the beast is described as it's, it's the beast upon which the woman sits. And the beast has seven heads and ten horns. And uh, uh, I won't spend a lot of time with it, but 
The beast is antichrist, but it is antichrist as the embodiment of, 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 of human government. And uh, we're told in the verse uh, 9 that the woman has seven heads, and those seven heads are seven mountains, and those seven mountains are seven kings, verse 10. Five have fallen. Are you familiar with this? How many grand empires have there been in the course of human history? There was Egypt, there was Assyria, there was Babylon, there was Medo-Persia, there was Greece. Those were gone in John's day. Five have fallen. One is, that's Rome, and, one, and the other has not yet come. Now that's the revived Roman Empire. But so there are these seven governments which have made this alliance with, with false religion in order to control men. But notice that, uh, and then verse 12, she also has ten kings, and that's a an arrangement of uh, human governments yet to come, the ten kings of the end-time confederation. And it's interesting in verse 14 that, uh, uh, verse 13, that these ten kings are of one mind and they'll give their power and authority to the beast, that's the Antichrist, and these will make war with the Lamb. So these are at war with, with the Lamb of God, this one who is coming to deliver. But notice, if you will, just one other thing. In verse 16, that the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot. So the time will come, and I believe this to be in the middle of the tribulation, when in fact, having made merchandise of false religion, the beast demands worship of himself and, and, and turns on the, on, on, on the harlot. But the point is, with that terribly quick survey, what you have in chapter 17 is a characterization of this harlot, this false religious system which has dominated. Uh, I know not everybody got these uh, notes, but there is... Uh, and, and, uh, there is an extended quotation here from uh, Joseph Seiss. I, I still read Seiss. I think he's very, very, very uh, helpful. But uh, this is what he has to say. Let me read to you. This is his characterization of the harlot, the false religious system, which in its many iterations and appearances, in fact, is one, and which traces itself to the impulse in Babel. Let us build a city and a tower, a false religion, and he says this, it's a mistake to suppose that idolatry was the gradual growth of well-disposed but unenlightened human thinking. That's what we're told all the time. The evolution, there are those who have an evolution, uh, an evolutionary, and I don't mean biological evolution, they look at religion and they say it's the product of evolution and not of revelation. And they'll tell us that men just sort of wandered, they were doing the best they could. Oh no. He says it's a, it's a mistake to suppose that idolatry was the gradual growth of well-disposed but unenlightened human thinking. Its rise was sudden. It was conceived in intentional rebellion. He has in mind here Genesis 11, Babel. It was the invention of a proud and tyrannous ambition at war with Yahweh's commands. It was brought into being to counteract the will and worship of the true and known God. It was the creature and handmaid of power. False religion has always been the handmaid of power for the deification of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. In the place of the Creator, it originated with old Babylon. Now listen to this, it's also a fact that all the pagan mythologies and idolatrous devotions the world over, and I bring that down to our own day, whatever their diversities, show a oneness of character, an underlying likeness which proves that they are from one original source. They are but modifications of one and the same primal invention traceable to old Babylon. The original design was thwarted by the confusion of tongues. That is, say, let's stay together here and worship. Well, God confused the tongues and the people were dispersed. But, he says, the, the original design was thwarted by the confusion of tongues but, and the people were obliged to disperse and leave off the building of their tower. But 
The charming novelties which Nimrod taught them were not lost. The seeds of the fascinating invention went with the dispersion, planting themselves in every new settlement and growing ever fresh crops as the streams of humanity ran on amid the centuries. Do you get that? No matter where it went, you had the same basic, wicked, idolatrous concept, and it showed itself in every culture. Whatever the changes and additions, whatever changes and additions came, it was still old Babylon, which ever abides, potent through all the ages, known to the judgment angels here in Revelation 17 as Babylon the Great, the mother of, of the harlots, the abominations of the earth. He says this, The wine of old Babylon's fornication was a debauching system of idol worship and carnal self-exaltation over against the revelation and institutes of Yahweh. It was already bottled and labeled before the first dispersion. That's, that's at Babel. And it went with that dispersion into every country and nation under heaven. Now, forgive me for reading so at such length, but I thought he said it well. But the point is, that's, that's the, 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 in, in Revelation 17, the, uh, uh, the angel uh, explains to John what's afoot, and he says that religious Babylon, that system, which finds its genesis there in the, in the, in, in the, in the uh, narrative of Babel, is going to be destroyed. And then Revelation 18, he gets just a little closer to home, perhaps, but notice in uh, what you have here is, is, I would say, the destruction of the city. If Revelation 17 is the destruction of the tower, the anticipated destruction of the tower, the city and the tower together are Babylon, and the tower is the religious system. The city is commercial Babylon, and this is really a remarkable passage. Let me just read with you real quickly. Notice verse 1, it says, after these things. Now, given my understanding of eschatology, the point is that it will be in the middle of the tribulation that the, that, that the beast turns upon the woman and religious Babylon is pretty well wiped off the face of the earth according to God's purposes by Antichrist. But then three and a half years later will come the destruction of commercial Babylon. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven with great authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons and so on, just as the Old Testament Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied. All the nations of the wine, uh, have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard, heard another voice, and this is so instructive to me, saying in verse 4, Come out of her, my people. Don't get caught up in this. Don't let this mentality that life is all about what you possess and there is this, that under the sun, which can give you full, real satisfaction and make your life worth living. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, you receive of her plagues. And then it goes on and talks about her sins of reach to heaven, and she's going to be paid back in like kind and so on. But what's remarkable to me, and I don't have time to read it all, but I, I would challenge you to, in verse 9 all the way down through 19, you have the mourning, that is the sorrow, the anguish of soul, in, in, in verses 9 and 10, the kings, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously. Folks, I want you to actually, actually picture this. Picture you are John and you see as, as, as um, or, or, or better yet, uh, picture yourself as it were sitting in the grandstand of heaven and you see all of this fine, look, look, you look about you. And there is so much that man has accomplished in terms of comfort and technology and, and vast monuments to himself and, 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 and that which makes life so enjoyable and so on. And, and, and to mankind, that's all there is to life. And imagine all of that going up in smoke. 
And the people who have invested all that they have in their soul and their lives in, that, in, that, in, in, in what the world has to offer, they watch it go up in smoke. And the kings of the earth mourn. They stand at a distance because, because of tear, fear of a torment. But they say, alas, they don't come to their spiritual senses. They don't, they, don't, they don't entertain the notion that maybe the reason this is all being destroyed is because of an offense to God. Instead, they, 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 their heart is broken. And the same thing in verse 11. The merchants, of course, who have, made, who have, have become wealthy, and as this scene unfolds and God just sends this whole thing up in smoke, they weep and they cry and it lists all the various things that they have, they, all the, 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 the types of craft and merchandise and so on with which they become so wealthy. But notice verse 16, they cried out, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold. For a one hour such great riches came to nothing. And then even the shipmasters and the sailors who plied the seas and, and became wealthy carrying this wealth. So the point is, it's, it's, it's just apparent on the face of it, that as I said to you before, Jesus said something in, 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 that really is counter, when you think about it, it's so counterintuitive when he says, a man's life does not consist in that which he possesses. And you look about you at the culture in which we live, and this is a culture fully, absolutely, inalterably persuaded the man's life consists of nothing more than that which he possesses and that there is nothing important but what we possess i, I think i said to you yesterday and this has just become such a such a an amazing um, I don't know, rubric to me uh the david wells in his book uh, uh, above all earthly powers says that once you take god out you leave god out of your life you're left with two strategies and they are consumption and distraction. You either consume or you find a way to distract your mind. And all of the, 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 the embellishments of life and so on are all about consumption and distraction because that's all there is when you leave God out and here it is going up in smoke. Now, I, I don't want to finish there. Let me just give me two minutes here real quickly. Because in verses 21 to 24, by the way, in verse 20, we're, we're called upon to rejoice to rejoice that the end is finally being put to this. But then you have the destruction of the city in Revelation in, in verses 21 to 24. And then look at chapter 19. Now let me just say this, and with this I'm done. Remember that what, those, what that wicked generation that settled there in the plain of Shinar set out to do was to make a name for themselves. And in order to do that, they contrived to build a city and a tower. And that culture which can be reduced to the city and the tower is ultimately about self-gratification, self-glorification. It is absolutely the primordial Luciferian sin to behave, to live out your life as if life is about me, about you. But God is going to put an end to that. And in verse chapter 19, it says, After those things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to Yahweh our God. True and righteous are his judgment because he has judged the great harlot and corrupt, who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants the prophets. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures there around the throne of God fell down and worshiped God who sat on his throne saying, Amen. 
Hallelujah, and listen to this, verse 6. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and I believe your voice and mine will be blended in with that multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for Yahweh, the Lord God omnipotent, reigns. And what we are looking for is a kingdom. I was, I was with a group in Israel, and it was kind of strange. I mean, it was a good solace, a friend of mine, but I don't know, he's a little confused about things, the pastor. <laughs> as I was talking to him, about this issue of the end times and so on. He said to me, Doug, I, I, I can't get excited about the millennium because I would just as soon go straight to heaven. And my reply was, but Ron, it's not about you. It's about God. And the fact of the matter is that the greatest glory of the premillennial gospel, and it happens to be the gospel of the New Testament, when the New Testament is taken for what it says, but the greatest glory in my mind of the premillennial gospel is this, that it honors the fact that human history is going somewhere. And that within the bounds of, 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 of time space, that, that time space continuum that you and I know as human history, we are moving inexorably toward a time when Jesus will reign on this earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ to the glory, do you hear it? To the glory of God the Father. And human history is not running amok. Human history is not going to, you know, the, 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 the amillennials gospel says that it'll never get better than it is today. The kingdom's here, right now. What, what could be more discouraging than that? And it says that the, the, the amillennialist uh, perspective on things says that there never will be a time in human history when God's name is honored on this earth. It only happens in eternity. That's why I love that phrase that Alvin McLean's used where he says to the amillennialist, uh, the, the, the human history is nothing but the dark vestibule of eternity, this dark corridor we have to get, out, to get through to go out where it's really gone. Listen, folks, I believe, I'm going to say it again, the God, we serve a God who is so powerful, so sovereign, and so intent on fulfilling his promises and his, his purposes that he is moving history inexorably toward that day when his son will reign on this earth. And, and I always say, I, 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 it's a good thing to be hungry for heaven, but when I die and go to heaven, remember this, that this world still lies in the lap of the evil one. And what you and I ought to hunger for is that day when God sets things straight on this earth and his son reigns in absolute righteousness. So I'm going to say it. The point is, Genesis 11, they set out to make a name for himself, for themselves. You know what? God will have none of it. Because human history is about God making a name for himself. And he is going to put an end to the wicked fallen system, which is a city and tower, and his son is going to come and reign on this earth in righteousness. Amen and amen? Amen. 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 All right. Thank you. God bless you.